So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And we're going to continue on in our series in verse 21 through 34. It's on page 836 in the Pew Bibles in front of you if you are using those. So Mark 1, 21 through 34. Who is Jesus? That's a question that we've been answering each week uh, for the last several weeks through the book of Mark. Uh, It's one of the most important questions in the whole world. Uh, And how we answer that question will shape how we live our lives. Uh, If we answer who is Jesus with a first century rabbi who stirred up some trouble and got himself killed, We'll live in one way, probably with some ambivalence and maybe even angst towards Jesus. But if we answer, who is Jesus, with the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord and King, then we'll live in a completely different way. We'll be forced to a decision. We'll come to a fork in the road, so to speak. We'll follow him Will we follow him joyfully and trust him with everything? Or will we continue in our futile rebellion against him? Even in the first chapter of of the book of Mark, he's taken us on quite a journey. Who is Jesus? Mark has answered that question by showing us that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who will bring new creation. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the second Adam who is going to reverse the curse. He's worthy of all worship. He's the anointed king. He's victorious over temptation and Satan as our representative. He's the historic fulfillment of the presence of the kingdom of God. This week is no different Mark is going to answer that question again of who is Jesus in a powerful way. If last week we we learned that the kingdom of God is at hand, this week we're going to get to see what actually happens when that kingdom comes. Our two settings in the text are these. First, Jesus in the synagogue in verses 21 through 28 And then, Jesus in the home, in verses 29 through 34. So, our two main movements today are these. Number one, the kingdom comes to church. And number two, the kingdom comes home. The sermon in a sentence this morning is this. When the kingdom of God comes, it's authoritative and disruptive, both to the forces of evil and to the people of God. Before we dive into point one, I want us to understand some background info that I think will actually be helpful as we dive into the text. While Jesus was born in Bethlehem and known as Jesus of Nazareth commonly, Capernaum became kind of like a second home to him, or more of like a home base for his ministry. Most Scholars believe that this was the case because Capernaum was where Simon, or Peter, and his brother Andrew lived. 
Uh, apparently, Jesus lived with their family for long stretches of time. Uh, it's also possible that this is where James and John lived as well. So those are the, the four disciples we saw him call to follow him last week. Capernaum uh, was an important fishing town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it had a seawall of about eight feet high that went about a half a mile in front of the village and, and several different piers that would go out onto the Sea of Galilee about a hundred feet out into the water. We know also that there was a tax office there and that a Roman centurion lived there. This means that it was most likely a military post of some sort too. So it's a pretty important happening place. The word Capernaum comes from two Hebrew words, Kafar and Nahum, which means the village of Nahum. So most believe that the city was the home of the Old Testament prophet Nahum. Uh, this city wasn't unfamiliar with words from the Lord. That's what I want us to see. Uh, if you go to Capernaum today, you'll see a limestone structure. So I've got a, a picture here. Limestone structure of a synagogue that was built in the, the first century. Um, so excavations, have, they've done excavations on that first century synagogue, and they've discovered that that one is actually built on top of a foundation of a previous synagogue, which is the one that's described in our text today. Uh, immediately next door to the synagogue, you kind of see these, these, this rubble and these ruins, um, was a house. Um, and guess who most likely lived in that house? Peter and his family. So, in verse 29, uh, when Mark says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, he's not just doing his, his normal Mark thing. And immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Uh, it's right next door. Uh, they literally walked out of the synagogue and into Peter's house. The second important thing to know is this. The synagogue is not the same thing as the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, and it's where sacrifices were made and things like that. This is a synagogue, and we know that it was a gathering or assembly of Jewish people. Uh, in antiquity, all that was, was required for a synagogue was at least 10 Jewish men older than 13. So in the synagogue, uh, they would get together. The scriptures were taught there, often by visiting rabbis who would come in and read and comment on the text. So uh, a synagogue, it was a little bit more formal than an open mic night. Um, that's what Jesus is stepping into here in our text. So what does it look like when, point one, the kingdom comes to church? Look with me at verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Jesus is there on the Sabbath. Uh, this started at sundown on Friday and went to sundown on Saturday. This is going to be important later in the text for us to know. So starts at sundown Friday, went till sundown on Saturday. He enters the, the open mic assembly, and he picks up the mic, so to speak, and starts teaching. Mark doesn't tell us what the content of Jesus' teaching was, but we have to imagine that he was teaching the Old Testament. 
making statements just like he did in verses 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, uh, we see him teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. He stands up. He reads the scroll of Isaiah. Then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop, right? We have to imagine that Jesus is saying and teaching similar truths here in the synagogue in Capernaum. And how do people respond to that? Verse 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He teaches, and they are astonished. This word means to be struck even violently, to be struck with panic or even shock. I kind of imagine their jaws open, receiving the word kind of like a gut punch. The the idea here isn't just that they were amazed, but that they were terrified because they'd never heard anyone teach like this before, as one who had authority. So understand this. Most of the scribes and traveling rabbis, they would come into these synagogues and they would read a text, and then they would give secondhand interpretations at best. They'd read Isaiah, and they'd say something like, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. There's no authority to their own teaching, but not Jesus. He taught them as one who had authority. Jesus didn't need to cite other authorities. He was the authority. He, like Old Testament prophets before him, could stand and confidently say, thus says the Lord. They were astonished. The Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the second Adam and the King, rose and spoke from his anointed lips, and they were captivated and moved. The kingdom was present, and they were disrupted at the core of their beings. Is this how you receive the word of God? Does it disrupt you at the core of your being? Now, I'm certainly not Jesus, but the Bible is no less the word of God than when it it was when Jesus taught. Each week, when you come, do you come expecting for the word of God to disrupt your life? Each morning when you open it up and read and meditate on it, Do you expect it to do something to you? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, the, the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus teaches the word of God with authority, and it affects people. Then, verses 23 through 26, look at this. It says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Whoa. Can you imagine this? Jesus is is upfront teaching. You're cut to the heart by what he's saying. And some guy stands up and starts yelling from the back. (laughs) I I imagine this kind of like a, a tennis match. The whole congregation turns their heads to see who it is that's yelling and then turns their heads back to Jesus to see how he's going to respond. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? So this unclean spirit or demon yells, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Basically saying, why are you up in our business? This kind of language was common in the Old Testament, and it insinuated conflict or combat. We see kings that would say this to other kings. What have you to do with me? What have you to do with us? This is a way of saying, get out of my face. Now, I want to be clear on this. While we we do have examples of the demonic realm in the Old Testament, like Pharaoh's magicians in the book of Exodus, who are able to mimic God's power to a certain extent. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. We see this with King Saul. That's there. But there just aren't that many examples of the demonic prior to Jesus or after Jesus' time on earth in church history. In a very real sense... When Jesus comes on the scene, all hell is breaking loose. This is important. Why? It's kind of like throwing light on a room full of cockroaches. They realize that their time is coming to an end. Remember Genesis 3. Because sin entered the world and its whole constitution was fractured. Sickness. Death. Evil begin to decay every living living thing post-Genesis 3. But amidst all of these curses, God gave a promise, remember? We've talked about this a ton, I know. But it's a theme all over the Bible. Genesis 3.15, known as the first gospel, the first good news, a promise directed at Satan but a glorious promise to mankind. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So speaking to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God saying, Satan, one day, A seed of Eve is going to come onto the scene, and he's going to destroy you. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's not going to be a mere body blow. It's going to be a headshot. Mankind knew this promise. They 
hoped for this promise. Satan and the demons also knew this promise, and they despised it. They hated it, and they loathed the day that it would come true. They knew that when that day came, it spelled destruction for them and for their kingdom. When Jesus came on the scene, the snake crusher was present. Is it any wonder then that demons would have this kind of reaction when Jesus comes in? Oh no, he's here. We're about to get our tails whipped. And so they continually, throughout the book of Mark, give one last outburst. Okay, back to Mark, verse 24. Jesus is teaching with authority. They're astonished. Verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon says, get out of our business. And then essentially, you've come to destroy us. By the way, the plurals here seem to be the demon speaking on behalf of all demons everywhere and Satan himself. Then he makes this odd, somewhat surprising statement. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What's up with that? Well, first, it's important to know that naming symbolizes authority. In the garden, God names Adam, but Adam names the creatures. He's given authority over them to work and to keep the garden. Later in Genesis, when Jacob is wrestling with this angel, we see something similar. Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 29 says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of, breaking of the day. When the man saw what he, that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And then, and there he blessed him. You see that? Jacob is asking for his name. He's seeking authority over him. Instead, God gives him a new name. He's the one with authority there. That's what the demon here in Mark is trying to do by naming Jesus. He's trying to assert authority one last time. How does that work out for him? Verse 25 and 26, it says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, uh, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. In essence, Jesus is saying, Shut up! Get out of here. And the demon obeys. There's hope here. 
There's, there's hope for the worst of us. There's hope for the most hard-hearted and even for the demon-possessed. Jesus can speak in an instant. Demons flee. Lives are changed by the word of God. Who is this Jesus? Verses 27 and 28. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. He teaches with authority. He has authority even over demons. The curse is being reversed. Do you see that? It's kind of like Narnia when the snow begins to melt. They all know that that snow melting means that Aslan's on the move. His friends are overjoyed and his enemies are terrified. It's happening. Now, before we move on, I want to briefly mention just a, a couple of, of truths. Number one, the spiritual realm is real. The spiritual realm is real. Paul tells us in, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. While we might not experience the, the consistency of demonic activity that, that Jesus does here in Mark, I can assure you that the demonic realm is still very much real. We'll talk more about this when we get to Mark 3. But Jesus is beginning to bind the strong man here as our representative. Jesus went and withstood the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Here, he's casting out demons. He's beginning to bind the strong man. Satan's power is being put in check. But it's still very much present. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The spiritual realm is real, and we should take it seriously. Two, reading a passage like this can kind of make us a little bit uneasy. This guy was possessed by a demon. That's rightly terrifying. But if you're a Christian, hear this loud and clear. You cannot be possessed by a demon. You have the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John, right? You can be oppressed and harassed by demonic forces, but you cannot be possessed. Third, if, if not believing in the spiritual realm exists, so that's which is probably most of our rational bents, to not believe that that exists at all, the other extreme should also be avoided. Some people become completely obsessed with the supernatural. They see demons everywhere. They blame Satan for every disease or problem that they're experiencing. And then don't take responsibility for their own sinful actions. The devil made me do it. 
That's unhealthy and not a biblical way to live. So on one side, don't be a functional atheist. The spiritual realm exists. But on the other side, don't be a fanatic. Take up the armor of God that Paul describes in Ephesians 6. Realize that Christ has already won the battle through his death, burial, and resurrection. Fourth, did you guys notice that the demons knew Jesus? The demons knew Jesus. This should scare us a little bit. It's possible to know Jesus or to believe in Jesus and still go to hell. These demons knew and believed that Jesus existed and even that he was the Holy One of God. It's possible to believe all of that and to be a demon. James chapter 2, verse 19. James says this explicitly. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Cognitive knowledge of Jesus is not enough, friends. Jesus calls for repentance and belief. Turning from our sins. Not just having a cognitive belief in Jesus, but trusting wholly and completely in him. Clinging with all we've got to Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. A true Christian turns from sin and goes all in on that. A true Christian knows that without Christ, we're sunk. He's our only hope in life and in death. Martin Luther once said, the life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another to say he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. Do you have merely a cognitive knowledge of Jesus? Or have you given your life to him? Is he a savior? Or is he your savior? He has authority over all things. And he's calling you to repentance and belief. Now, quickly with the time we have left, Jesus moves out of the synagogue and into the home. Point two, the kingdom comes home. Look with me at verses 29 through 30. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Quick side note, who's Simon? Peter, right? Did you catch that? Verse 30 says he had what? Mother-in-law. What does that mean? It means that Peter was married. <laughs> this is a problem for Roman Catholicism. They teach clerical celibacy or that priests can't be married. They also teach that Peter was the first pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Peter has a mother-in-law. I'll just leave that there and move on. 
Anyway, she's sick. Again, why do we have sickness in this world? Genesis 3, again. What's Jesus going to do? Verse 31. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Jesus teaches with authority. He has authority over the spiritual realm. And now he has authority over sickness. He heals her. Isn't Jesus compassionate? His authority is powerful, yes. Powerful enough to cast out demons. But he's also tender and compassionate. He personally takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And look at her response. She's she's down for the count. He heals her and she pops up and immediately starts serving. Look at this. This This is what healed people do. They serve Jesus. They serve others. Jesus doesn't do a partial healing here. He heals her completely. And her immediate response is to get up and to serve. This is what Christians do. Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is a prophecy about Jesus. It says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If you're a Christian, you've been healed fully and completely. Your sins were placed on Jesus and he was crushed for your iniquities. He took the penalty, gave us peace, and healed us. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Well, in this text, healed people, serve people. Healed people, serve people. She gets out of bed and she starts serving Jesus and his disciples. What a meal that must have been. Think about that. Can you imagine the joy surrounding that table? She obviously hadn't slaved away all day preparing the perfect meal. But I'm sure that was an unforgettable feast. Jesus had just healed her. And there she was, serving them. Christians, imitate her. Imitate her. If you've turned from sin and trusted in Christ, you've been healed. Go serve. Serve Jesus. Serve his people. By God's grace, even in the short amount of time that we've been a church, we've seen this kind of thing. There's so many different examples that I could name. I could mention all of you who serve in the children's ministry each and every week. But I want to point out a couple of people specifically. Uh, Last weekend, we had the daddy-daughter date night. Great time. Chandler Whitchurch served her tail off to make that happen. And this isn't abnormal for her. She serves all the time. She loves Jesus. She loves his people. 
She's been healed by the blood of Jesus, and she serves. Neil Ortiz is fairly new to the church, but he loves Jesus. He loves his people, and he serves. He doesn't know that I know this, but two weeks ago, he went by Gail's Bakery. With his own money, he bought a pie to honor Harold and Rita Poling, who were here fixing our bathrooms. He's made dinner for some of you. He's been up here each Sunday morning cleaning our restrooms so that our facilities are more hospitable. Healed people serve people. This is a biblical response to the gospel. Notice that Jesus didn't just heal because she served him. She served him because he had healed her. There's a proper order here. Jesus doesn't save us because of anything we do in and of ourselves. He saves us by grace. And our response is gratitude, a life of faithful service. There's no amount of good that you can do to earn salvation. You can't ever be good enough. But there's one who was, Jesus. He lived perfectly. And when you repent and believe, you'll be healed. That leads to a life of service. Do you see that? If you're a Christian, where are you serving? And this doesn't have to be a program. Yes, we can always use help in the children's ministry. That's great. Don't stop serving down there. But you can also serve your neighbors. You can serve the elderly lady down the block who hasn't had anyone visit her for five years. You can serve your friends by cleaning dishes and taking out the trash after a party. The possibilities here are endless. Healed people serve people. So Jesus has spoken in the synagogue on a Sabbath morning. He's cast out a demon, trotted next door, and displayed authority over sickness. Now look with me at our last three verses, verses 32 through 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Remember earlier what I told you about the Sabbath. When does it start? Friday at sundown. When does it end? Saturday at sundown. Look at verse 32. What's going on here? Capernaum is buzzing. The snow's melting in Narnia. Jesus taught with authority. He cast out a demon. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. These people are still held captive under the law. They've waited all day long to bring Jesus more sick and demon-possessed people. Why? Because they believed that they'd be violating the Sabbath by working. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's going to be questioned on this multiple times in the book of Mark. 
But if we've learned one thing, we've learned that he's authoritative over all. Do I believe that it's good for us to rest one day out of seven? Yes, absolutely. It's built into the fabric of creation. We need rest. We need to acknowledge that God keeps the world spinning without us needing to work. We're commanded to gather together as a church on the Lord's day. All of that's true. But Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one the Sabbath day rest points to. The religious leaders in Capernaum, they had turned the Sabbath into a day of legalism. Jesus made it a day of blessing. He's bringing the gospel to people in tangible ways. And I want to note that verse 32 and 34 clearly distinguish between the sick and demon-possessed. Those are not the same thing. This might be a foreign concept to you, and I really hope that it is, but there's some people out there who associate everything with demon possession. In other words, if I have a cold, they think we need to rebuke the cold demon. But this isn't how Jesus handles it, is it? They're bringing people to him. There's sickness and there's demon possession. Two separate things addressed in two separate ways. He heals the sick and he casts out the demons. We live in Santa Cruz County. There's a lot of people with mental health issues. Not all of them are demon-possessed. Knowing the difference between the two, that's a whole other discussion for another time. But understand that there is a difference. In closing, I want to finish by revealing to us a tragedy. Jesus literally walked and lived and taught and ministered and healed in Capernaum, all with absolute authority. And yet, in Matthew 11, Jesus lists Capernaum as one of the cities who didn't listen, didn't repent. He says this, Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's a tragedy. They heard and saw the kingdom of God in their presence. How will you respond to the kingdom? Will you receive the authoritative teaching of Jesus the King? Will you turn and trust Jesus? When the kingdom of God comes, no one's left stationary. Demons shriek and Christians serve. When the kingdom of God comes, it's authoritative and disruptive, both to the forces of evil and the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it changes us.
Lord, help us to obey your word. Lord, we confess wholeheartedly that without your spirit, we can do nothing. So Lord, because of the good news of Jesus, we pray that you would empower us to go and to serve you and to serve others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.